is that money falling from the sky? Um, <laughs> oh, I wish they could be here. Um, <laughs> clever podcast joke. Um, all right. Uh, I want to start today uh, with a, by opening up with prayer, but I want to do it a little bit differently. I want us to just take a look at the verses we're going to be looking at in Revelation 3, 1 through 3, which is the letter to the church at Sardis. So if you want to turn on your Bible, or turn your phone into a Bible, um, and we'll take a look at it. Um, what I want to do is I want to just uh, read this to you, and I want just to take a second for us to focus and allow the scripture to become our time of prayer, that we want to think about what it is this uh, text might mean to us. Um, so here we go. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Um, When Russ and Kevin asked me to talk, um, they said, hey, could you talk about what you think uh, our community maybe needs to hear? And I said, absolutely. Um, It's something I feel really passionate about is that um, from up here, we need to be talking about things that people are actually experiencing in our communities Um, when they said, and could you do that in the context of Revelation, I said, absolutely. Um, There's probably not a book of the Bible that we understand more clearly or all agree about. Uh, And in some ways, I feel like it's even a little silly to be here. I mean, when there's passages like this, um, you can show that next one here, um, or the the next one. Um, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away at the flood. I mean, in some ways it's even hard to be up here because that teaches itself. Am I right? (laughs) Um, I mean, that's just, you're like, yeah, no, I get it. (laughs) I call that Tuesdays. Am I right? Um... (laughs) Uh, the great thing about like (laughs) the great thing about giving talks about revelation is for the weeks leading up to this i just have all these jokes about the end of the world um which i can't imagine are particularly useful most of the time but if things go bad i will be great to be around um right when the zombie apocalypse occurs i'm going to be in great spirits i got a ton of them um So one of the challenges, I think, uh, when we look at... Last week, Russ did a great job talking about the idea of what is a letter, how do they function. Um, And so today, I want to spend a little time talking about this genre of literature, what we call apocalyptic literature. Um, And the reason I want to do that is because I think when we understand um, how this literature functions, or at least how part of this literature functions, it helps us sort of see the ways in which we might still be able to apply these things in our own lives. Um, And so we're going to be doing lots of sojourning, okay? We're going to be moving through lots of stuff. Um, And I will do my best to be clear. Um, But I want to lay out sort of where we're going so that if there's any confusion, we can come back to these two really clear ideas. Um, The first thing is, 
I want to give space so that we can figure out how do you use this kind of literature that's filled with imagery and wonder um, and danger and intrigue and excitement, um, how do we use that in our daily sort of mundane lives? Um, most of us do not have rivers pouring out of our mouths. Um, very few of us know seven-headed beast. Um, I don't want to say everyone. I have, it's not my right to make those assumptions. Um, and so how do we actually still use this stuff? Um, and then the second part of that is I think once we understand how you might use this literature, it opens up places where we can think about um, our own lives and are the struggles that are, are being faced by the churches in Asia Minor that these letters are written to, are those some of the same struggles that we have? Um, so how do we use this stuff? Um, does that sound good? Are you okay with that? Uh, I get the sense that some of you had one of those weeks. Did some of you have one of those weeks? You know those weeks where it's like, yeah, yeah some of you did? I did too. I was sick all week. I'm more NyQuil than man right now. Um, and so I, I think, you know, sometimes when we read these letters, they seem kind of doom and gloom. And actually my hope is to kind of turn that on its head a little bit, is to say that I think some of the exhortations we see in Revelation are encouragements to return to a deeper, stronger truth about who we are and how we uh, orient to God. Um, and so what I want to suggest is that for some of you that are having one of those weeks um, and then you hear that we're going to talk about Revelation, um, maybe it might be a place of hope in ways that we hadn't possibly imagined. That's my goal. Um, so what is apocalyptic literature? Um, when we read books with lion-faced baby angels and promiscuous dragon women and all these kinds of weird images, um, there's lots of the questions, I think, that come to mind. At least they come to my mind, right? Like, what is this? Um, how are you supposed to even read this stuff? Um, if you can even understand what's going on, how would you then apply it? Um, if, the if the moon and the sun turn to blood, will my solar panels still work? Um, <laughs> there's a number of things that we, that we question when we read this stuff. Um, and it'd be impossible to answer all of those things about how you use this literature. And I don't want anyone to get left behind. Um, uh, so, <laughs> Kirk Cameron's in here a lot, guys, right, in my side of my head, and I'm doing everything I can not to let him out, um, it's, and it's growing pains, um, that's a deep 80s cut, um, and so I can't answer in one little time all these questions about, uh, what is apocalyptic literature, so I, I want to sort of just paint with a, a real broad stroke here one of the things I think that often challenges us when we encounter these things. Um, and for contemporary readers, I think part of the problem is that we just don't read this kind of stuff very often. It's not a very Western kind of thing. Some of you might argue in the fall when you get the WSU football schedule that that's a little bit like apocalyptic literature. Um, oh, that was so, that was mean. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, but for the, for the most part, the West isn't, it's not really something that we value that, that much because it's a sort of an odd, uh, it's an odd sort of literary genre that uses symbols and images as a way to point to a potential future, but the reason why you point to a potential future is actually to remind us of the places that we come from and the places that we're supposed to return. Um, and, the, and the Western tradition is much more linear, sort of just going forward. Um, and so it's not something that we encounter a ton. Uh, and the other problem, I think, is that when we hear the word apocalypse and prophecy, we tend to think about telling the future, 
right? We hear the word prophecy and we think that means only something like, hey, what's going to happen in the future? What are the events that are going to occur? Um, and so when we read an Old Testament book like Daniel that's apocalyptic, we ask ourselves, hey, did all this stuff happen? Um, and then when we read a book like Revelation, we say, hey, should I be paying attention to what's going on? Are, are the signs of the beginning of Armageddon happening around me? Um, and we often forget that there's this other really important aspect of these kinds of texts. Um, and it's something that we might call a teleological function, which is a fun word. Um, so teleology is a fancy way of saying an account of a given thing's ends, meaning what is this thing supposed to be? What is it supposed to become? And so one really easy example is to think of an acorn. Right? The teleological function of an acorn is not to stay an acorn, it's to become an oak tree. Right? That's its end. That's its goal. That's what it's moving towards. And so apocalyptic literature is a kind of, of genre that reminds us of the thing that we are supposed to become. What is our fullness? What is our complete expression? Um, and in the book of Revelation, John tells us that the second coming of Jesus is the focus of this text. Um, but it's not simply about predicting events or a blueprint of what it will look like when Jesus returns. Um, it's also a teleological argument. It's about what is the fullness of Jesus' return supposed to mean? What does it inaugurate? What does it complete? What, is it, what happens when Jesus returns? What does that mean? Um, and there's this beautiful passage at the end of Revelation where I think we get a clear sense of what John thinks the telos of Jesus is. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Um, it's good. You know, it's a good vision. Um, and that vision, the fullness of the kingdom... Um, is what Revelation is about, right? All the language, all the colorful language about how will this look and what will lead up to it and all those things, those are part of and necessary for the story that's being told. But the point of the story is not about making sure that you're in the right spot so that when everyone gets raptured, you're there. The point of the story is to understand here is what it means when Jesus returns. This is what his purpose is, to bring about the kingdom in its fullness um, I like the way one theologian explains it. He says, Revelation is not a story of followers being saved from the world. Rather, Jesus returns in fulfillment of Easter's resurrection promise that one day heaven and earth will embrace and Yahweh will once again dwell fully with his people and into his creation. Right? So this is the telos of Revelation. That is a story about what will happen in the fullness of time. Um, what will happen when, the, when heaven and earth are no longer at odds with each other, but are fully integrated. Um, and we are, the kingdom that we profess to belong to is now in its fullness, right? This is a story about what it will be like when we get to experience the full glory of God. Um, and all the strange stuff leading up to it is important, 
but we don't want to take our eyes off the fact that this is a story about what does this mean in the end. Yeah? We tracking with that? Okay? Um, and so then when we think about the letters which are written to specific churches, we can also begin to ask the same question. Um, the church, both universal and local, has a specific kind of telos. It has a particular function. It is supposed to be uh, working in a certain kind of way in the world. Um, last week, on uh, the passage that Russ looked at, there was this language of lampstand. Do you guys remember that? Or lamp post? Yeah? Um, and this is a, a, a Jewish, a really old, old Jewish idea. Um, and it's a, the image of the lamp post is this idea that the communities that follow after Yahweh and now the communities that follow after Jesus are to be places where there is a light to the rest of the world. A place that signals here is safety, here is hope, here is redemption, here is grace, here is mercy. Um, that there's a place for the lost and the lonely um, and that these mark the sort of boundaries of the kingdom that is ever, uh, sort of ever encroaching on the earth, right? That, the, that new community should function as a lamppost, a place that says these are the gates towards uh, the kingdom of God, right? Come to this place and you get to meet Jesus. Um, and so while the boundaries of the kingdom are, are inaugurated, that we've begun the work of the kingdom, it doesn't come in its fullness until Jesus returns, right? And that's the story of Revelation. So what we have for these churches in Asia Minor is this, these exhortations about you know what you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be part of this final vision, the people of God living in fullness with Jesus, and so are you doing that at the moment? Right? Are you doing this thing at the moment? Yeah? We tracking with that? That's good? Yeah? Um, just had this image of all these like tiki torches everywhere. Um, you ever had those tiki? And like, <laughs> sorry. Um, whenever you try to like dump the new stuff in them and it's like you light them up and the entire thing bursts into flames, um, that might be like just like, you know, Unrequited joy. You can't, you can't cover your lampstand. In fact, your entire lampstand is on fire. Um, and that's the kind of people we're supposed to be. Um, <laughs> uh, the local church, right? The, these churches in Asia Minor and I would say new community, right, are supposed to function as outposts, marking the edges of the kingdom. Um, and we mark a place that is in opposition in some ways to the oppressive institutions that govern the rest of the world, right? Um, and this is why the language of symbol and things like that is so important in Revelation is because John is reminding the people that you are not Rome, you are something different, that you're supposed to live in a different kind of way, that you're supposed to live in a way that invites the oppressed and the lonely and the lost in. Um, so the telos of the church, its ultimate goal then, um, at least as it's understood in the book of Revelation, is to be functioning in such a way as to fully integrate with the kingdom of heaven when it comes in its fullness. Okay? That is, the church should now be living in such a way as to make the transition of God's final rule as seamless as possible. Right? Our job is to demonstrate for a watching world what it's going to look like. And it's not going to be perfect. Um, of course it's not going to be perfect. But it can't look like the rest of the world. Right? We're supposed to live in such a way as to mark the beginnings of this great project that is the new heaven and the new earth. And do we live in such a way? Um, and so when we understand the teleological function of apocalyptic literature, um, we can begin then to ask some different questions of these letters. Um, and I think the, the thing that 
the, the simplest way for me to think about this is the idea that these letters are reminders to these churches, are you living out your ultimate purpose? Are you being the kind of thing that lights the world, or lights the way for the world? Um, so let me, that's all big, heavy, fancy word stuff. Um, so let me try to do this uh, in a more simple way, because I think we actually play teleological games all the time. How many of you ever played that game, if you only had one week to live? Right? Or something like that, right? Would you rather? Those games are teleological functions. They are not like, you know, man, you're not supposed to write down the notes and say, oh, if I only had one week to live, I'd go to France. This is a great idea. When the end comes, buy tickets, right? Uh, that's not the purpose of that. The purpose of those questions is to say, wait, if this is what I think the ultimate end is, then am I doing that now, Right? Because whenever you answer those questions, the next step is for you to feel miserable about what it is that you are actually doing and say, why don't I live like this now? Oh, boy. Um, um, <laughs> that's how all my uh, good eating starts. You know, after this Big Mac, um, things will get better. <laughs> uh, right? And so we play those games all the time because they're not about, like, giving helpful steps for if you could only take two books to a deserted island. Like, that's the, the point isn't like, oh, I should go buy those books. The point is to say, where are you now in relationship to your end, right, to your, fu- your fullest expression of self, your telos? Where am I at right now? And so when we think of it that way, then we can go back to these letters in Revelation, and we can see that John's using these apocalyptic images as ways of asking these communities, if Jesus were to come back right now, right, if you were to come back right now, where would you be? Would you be able to have a parade and welcome in the king and things would go seamlessly? Or would he have to reorganize everything that you're doing because you're so far off the mark that you don't even look like the kingdom that's coming? Right? These are reminders that, um, hey, get your stuff together. Okay? Now... Uh, I think there's, uh, N.T. Wright's one of my favorite theologians, and I think he explains this really well. He says, the letters to the church in Revelation, and the ways that we might want to think about um, apocalyptic literature is like this. Are we borrowing from the energy and the beauty of a future promised in order to enliven our actions in the current moment? Right? Are we living fully into the resurrection promise that one day we will live in the fullness and glory of God, that there will no longer be a tear or war or pain, are we borrowing from that vision to enliven our steps every day, right? And that's the idea of the now but not yet kingdom, right? That we borrow from this future hope in order to enliven our steps today so that we might look something like the beauty that is coming. It's not perfect um, we're not the ones that fulfill it, but we can start to live like we actually believe the stuff we say, right? That we believe um, that there is a resurrection and that we get to live in this kingdom. And are we living in that way? Um, and that ultimately leads me to the crux of what I think I've been wanting to, uh, what I've been listening to people say and what I think maybe our community needs to hear, which is, when we begin to talk about any of this stuff, it's really hard for most of us not to hear something like, you need to change the way you're living and do better. Is that true? Am I making that up? Yeah. You need to figure out ways to act and live better. 
and then you'd experience God more fully, and then you'd be more like a lamppost. And so rather than adding to the beauty, we just add to the guilt, right? And um, what I want to suggest is maybe there's another way to understand uh, the story that we see in Revelation. Um, There might be another way of understanding some of this language, which is certainly an exhortation and and is convicting, um, but is also a reminder of this actually beautiful, simple truth that we often overlook. And so one way to think about this question is, when, God, when, when John exhorts us to wake up and live, right? Wake up. What is he asking us to wake up to? And I think the answer to this question started last week with Russ, and I want to keep building on this passage. Uh, last week, um, we talked about this idea of you've, you have this phrase, you have forsaken your first love. Right? You, hold, you hold my commandments and you have right doctrine. You even dislike the same people I dislike, but you've forgotten your first love. Right? And Russ last week talked about this idea in the context of marriage, and I think this is a good one. Um, but I want to add to that and say this is also really, really ancient Jewish language for the idea of covenant. Right? What is your first love? Your first love is this covenant that you made with Yahweh and that Yahweh made with you, that I will be your God and you will be my people. Right? Um, and so the idea here, and we see it in the passage that we saw earlier about the end, what will it look like? We use this language of the, the marriage ceremony, right? That there's a bride and there's a groom and there's this love and commitment and co- covenant to each other. Um, and one of the earliest Hebrew prayers, the Shema, which shows up in Deuteronomy 6.5, um, reminds us that this was an idea that was at the center of the Jewish experience and at the center of those who first followed after Christ uh, the people that John is writing to. And the Shema is this very simple prayer, right? Shema means to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Right? The Lord, and this idea of oneness is that God, in some miraculous way, is the one that both loves us and empowers us to love him. Right, that there's a singularity to this. There's a there's a wholeness. That it, when we are in right relationship with God, we are in a place where not only are we strengthened to love through His Spirit, but we are also reminded that we are loved. Right, this wholeness was the center of this prayer, and so they would say this prayer in the morning and in the evening to remind them that there's a wholeness. Right, and that is the key. That our first love is our relationship with God. Um. Here's what I think probably, so let me be, can I be frank? You be John, I'll be frank. Um, (laughs) Look, here's what I think probably the problem is for the contemporary church, particularly new community and the people that I love and talk to. You don't actually buy the fact that Jesus loves you. Yeah? And you live in a place where the only values about your relationship with God that you recognize are something like grace and mercy, and those are important, but it's bigger than that. Right? And so we begrudgingly say things like, yeah, I guess I was saved, and I, get, 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 I guess God shows me mercy, and that's fine. But most of us don't actually believe that we could be entrusted with the work of the kingdom. Right? I'm 
just letting it sit there, but I have to act like I'm trying to collect my thoughts so that you don't know that you're just letting it sit there. Um, right? That this is the dilemma of do we actually believe that the Lord, our God, the Lord is one? That we are people that are created and loved and that we are empowered to love well. And that the more that we love well, the more we realize how much we are loved. Um, and this leads to all kinds of insecurities where I think Michelle did a great job. It, it leads to all these things where we become even more inward focused, right? And for some of us, we become wildly uh, driven and competitive about every aspect of our life, right? We become perfectionist. And we, we struggle with, how can I do this better? And everything, our relationships, our job, everything. How can I be perfect? 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 Which is a great understanding of the human condition, given that the only consistent thing throughout Scripture is you're not perfect. <laughs> the audacity that we even have literacy tests. Right? Right? Some of us will not accept that fact. And the more that we try to be perfect, to do all the things on our own... Um, the more I think our insecurities manifest themselves as pride and then the opposite of that is just this guilt that hits us like waves, right? Then there's those of us who because we can't believe that Jesus really loves us and might entrust us with the work of his kingdom, our insecurities manifest themselves in other ways, right? Um, just shame, Right? When we withdraw from community, we make self-destructive decisions. Um, we do all these things because we're convinced that there's no way that there's room for us um, in this kingdom project. That we are, by the grace of God, simply saved, and let's just leave it at that. Right? And there's more to our story than that. When you are saved by grace, you are invited into the work of a kingdom there are jobs and tasks and roles and beautiful things that only you can create. And if you don't do it, guess what? They don't get done. And they don't get done because it wouldn't be very loving of a parent to say, this is what you're specially made for, and when you don't do it, just to fill it in anyway. Yeah. So... Really, what I want to talk about today, if you know me, um, is I just want to talk about dancing. Um, because I think this conversation about what does it mean to love God and to fully live into this reality that we are uh, in relationship with him and to remember our first covenant. Uh, I'm not getting ready to dance. I'm just getting tired. Um, <laughs> sorry for the letdown, some of you. Um, uh, but I think the problem is, is that our narrative for how do we do this better often just comes back to, well, you should be more disciplined, right? And so we say, oh, I'm doing the wrong actions. I should change that by doing different actions. Um, and that's, I don't think that's really where the hope lies. I think the hope lies in having a totally sort of reimagining of what it means to be in relationship with God. Um, and what does it mean to live like kingdom people? And so I think dancing is this wonderful metaphor. Um, and I want to tell... A story. I want to tell a story about a guy named Rabdurenneth Tagore. He was a poet uh, and a playwright and an artist and an educator and an activist in India, the turn of the century, uh, turn of the last century, sorry. Um, and Tagore 
had this vision of schooling Indian children in a way that it would allow them to move beyond the sort of like restrictive, conservative nature of the caste system. Um, that would move them away from simply memorizing facts and figures and instead allow them to experience art in its fullness and understand the power of creation and creative energy and, and what that would look like. And perhaps more provocative than anything else was his belief that women should be able to learn side by side with men. Um, and so they started these schools and they had classrooms and they invited people in and they said, hey, everybody's going to learn together, men and women, this beautiful vision. Let's do it. But they made one really important miscalculation. The women in the classroom had no capacity to understand that they were worthy of learning. Their culture had taught them that they should be ashamed of their minds, they should be ashamed of their bodies, that they should be ashamed of everything about them. And therefore, even in light of this wonderful vision that everyone had the right to learn, the people that the vision was directed towards didn't have an understanding of their own worthiness. They didn't actually believe that they were the kind of people that should be entrusted with anything. So he started doing these really interesting activities. Uh, he, was already, he, he, he wrote uh, plays and he, he played music. Um, and a side note, there's always this moment, I think, when I talk that I, I, I wish that like, I will be empowered to just pick up the guitar and start playing like songs, show tunes or something. Um, it's not today. Um, and so he started by doing these activities with women dancing. And he would give them really simple things like leap from here to here. Right? Or stand up tall. Right? Or open up your arms. Right? And he started to give them these physical expressions that allowed them to experience their bodies in ways they had never been allowed to before. Right? It's really hard to tell somebody you have the freedom to do what you want when they've never had the freedom to do this. Right? And so he began to give them these exercises. These choreographed moves to experience themselves in new kinds of ways. And what he began to see is that they started to get it. And they started to understand that, that maybe they had a purpose and a reason and that they could be entrusted with things. Um, there's a, a wonderful uh, psychologist, sociologist named uh, Brene Brown. Many of you have maybe seen her TED Talks or read her books. And I think she gives a really nice description of what Tagore was doing with these women, which was... He was giving them a way to think about what Brown calls wholehearted living, right? Wholehearted living. Um, and she defines uh, a wholehearted living as engaging our lives from a place of worthiness, right? Um, engaging our lives from a place of worthiness. To start from a place that you believe that you are not only worthy of being loved, but that you are loved so that you can open yourself up to do great things because you know that there isn't anything that can hurt you. There's nothing more powerful than your sense of self and purpose and love, right? And in fact, sense of purpose and sense of self all actually stem from these, these places of feeling loved, right? And because of that, you're enlivened, you're strengthened, um, and she says this idea of wholehearted living came from her research because she did a lot of stuff talking about shame. 
And she saw lots of people that were just always so shameful, couldn't imagine themselves as anything. Um, they weren't worthy of anything, right? But then she met these other people that she said seemed to be resilient towards shame. They weren't perfect. They messed up. They botched things, you know, yada, 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 you know. But they seemed to be resilient to it, that they didn't allow it to be the thing that d- defined them. Um, and so she said, this must be the other part of it. If, if we can all feel shame, then there's got to be something that allows us not to feel shame. Um, and so she said, this idea of wholehearted living to come from a place of worthiness seems to come from these, these different qualities. And I want to mention three of them. The first is that it comes from a place where we realize that love and belonging are irreducible needs for everyone. It's what gives us purpose and meaning, right? That it starts from a place where you realize that love, to be loved and to give love, is the beginning, right, of moving beyond simply feeling shameful all the time. Secondly, she noticed that this strong belief in our worthiness doesn't just happen, right? It's cultivated through daily practice, right? It's choreographed, if you will. And finally, that the wholehearted identify vulnerability as the catalyst for courage, compassion, and connection, right? Which makes sense. The more you realize that you are not defined by this, this world that wants to oppress you and, like, it makes sense, right, that when you say, no, no, I can open up and do things, and it doesn't define me if I fail, you're necessarily going to have more courage uh, and compassion and connection. Um, we often say, I love sports, um, and we often say athletes have short memories, right? But we say that phrase because it's safer than saying the reality, which is they're delusional. Right? And why are they delusional? Because they have this courage that is completely irrational. Right? Completely irrational. But it's irrational because it comes from this place where they say, hey, I can do this. I'm okay. We're going to be fine. Right? Um, So in other words, Brown decides, and and I think this is what we see at the women dancing in India, and we're going to circle back here to what I think God is calling us to in these letters, is that the people that seem to know themselves, that seem to understand their purpose in the world, they aren't perfect. But they also are not bound by their desire for perfection. Right? They are not more talented. They are not more dependable or... They don't show up on time. Right? Like, it's not those things that define somebody that's wholehearted. They simply have this idea that they are worthy of being loved and also have the capacity to love. And their daily commitment to those kinds of vulnerabilities allow them to be more connected with others, to be more courageous, um, and to live in ways that are attractive. You all know, hopefully you know people like that, right? And you're attracted to them and you want to be around them. And you want to be around them not because they are so fantastic that you're hoping just to glean a little bit of their like work ethic. You want to be around them because what do they make you feel about yourself? You're worthy of being loved. Right? Um, and so, when we look at this letter to Sardis, and we are convicted to wake up and to be reminded of the things that we know, um, in some ways I, I think we can, can think about this as dancing. Uh, we are being asked to wake up 
to our first love, to be reminded that we are in relationship with God and that it's beautiful and that it empowers us um, and that it's not about doing more of the right things at the right time. It's about changing our orientation to the question to begin with. Why do we not feel God's presence in our lives? Why do we not feel the kingdom moving through us? The answer probably is more simple than we would like it to be, which is simply this. You don't believe that it can. So how do you start to live in a way that it can? Um, So as practical as one can be when talking about the book of Revelation, I want to end with a few things that I think we might be able to do as a community to to live out our mission as kingdom people. Does that sound good? Um, How many of you hope now I would just give you like three, like, it's the Macarena. Um, (laughs) It's every 80s dance movie and only when like uh, the, uh, the overhead sprinklers hit you. Um, what are the 80s? <laughs> That's crazy. Um, <laughs> the 1780s, the Quakers were just going to shake in front of each other. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh, that was a deep joke, huh? End of the world jokes and <laughs> religious ordered dance jokes. Um, That's the NyQuil talking. Um, All right. So how might we become a wholehearted community, Newcom? First, and I think the worship band and the creative arts team and all all of the folks that come up front do a great job of this, but we have to have a safe space. The church has to be a place that models the reality of the Shema prayer, right? We have to understand that this is a place where you can come and be who you are and that you're worthy because you're here. Yeah? Make sense? You don't got to do anything to show up here. Um, on some Sundays, if you see my family walking in, we take that very seriously. We barely woke up. We stumble in. My children run, break things. Um, right? Uh, you don't have to be perfect to show up here. You just got to show up. And our job as the community is to make this a place where we can feel loved, right? Like this has got to be a place from that, that you know that you're loved regardless of what's going on. Um, and that because of that love, you're able to give it back to others. The second thing, and I think this is the one that's really um, really important for us to understand, is that I don't think learning how to be a kingdom people involves this contemporary move that we like to make. Hey, welcome. Welcome. Do whatever you want to do. Let's, let, let's be organic. Let's, hey, guys, let's just be organic. Let's do that. Here's the thing. Things that are organic are not as organic as the way that we talk about things that are organic. Have you ever noticed that? Like, let's go back to our acorn. You can't be like, hey, acorn, be whatever you want to be, man. (laughs) Right? And the acorn never pops up and turns into, like, an armadillo or something. Like, I did it. I was organic. I just let it happen, and now I'm a a, a thing. Right? Um... This is, and this is one of my pet peeves, and it's, it's my pet peeve probably because I talk like this for most of my adult life. I've said things like, hey, let's just be organic. But that's the worst. Have you ever gone to a party where you don't know anybody? And you walk in, and they're like, just do whatever. Well, it looks, whatever looks the same for everybody. Sit in a chair by yourself, petrified of the other humans, <laughs> until somebody that you know comes over and you realize we have collective strength in our insecurity. Let's start, like... And you start grabbing people, um, right? 
It's the worst. It's the worst. And so I think as a community, we have to be a little bit more like Tagore was with those women, right? We have to have choreographed moves. We have to give each other things to do, right? Watch, watch what I'm going to do here. We already have those things. We call them the spiritual disciplines. We don't like the word discipline, so we think that's bad. But we already have that stuff, right? Our tradition is filled with these choreographed moves that allow us to experience what it is to be loved and how we might have the capacity to love others, right? But because we talk about them as disciplines, we instantly go back to that narrative of like, oh, I know I'm not disciplined because I make bad choices because I'm a bad person. It spins out of control, right? We got to stop doing that and just say, no, 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 no. We have all these things that we can do because God loves us enough and knew that we're going to kind of be messed up. So he gave us some things that we can start to, to do to believe that we're the kind of people that can do great things, right? That we can stand up big, right? And so we pray not because you're supposed to pray. We pray because praying is nonsensical in a world like ours, right? If you think prayer is a little bit like studying a book, then you're missing the point. Prayer is like this. Asking an infinite creator God to come inside your room, in your head, with your friends, through your Bible, to tell you stuff about who you are. That's not studying, I don't think. It's not studying without drugs. Um, (laughs) Right? Uh, To be generous, right? To be generous is not to say, I will give when I have a job that pays me more. To be generous is to say, you know it would be crazy and nonsensical and this? To just give it away. Right? We have these things. We have these choreographed movements that we've had for centuries, for millennia, since the beginning. These beautiful practices that remind us of how crazy things are. You don't fast so that eventually you'll work your way up to not needing to eat. Right? And that's how we think about discipline. Well, if I do this more and more and more and more and more and more and more. No, 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 no. The point of the disciplines is to remind us that there's these crazy practices that are so counter to everything else we do in our human experience that they tell us that we are somebody that is loved and created and we can do amazing things, right? We fast as a way to remind us of the frailty of our own bodies. Oh my goodness, you're right. I rely so much on my own strength. Quite literally, I need food that I gather to put into my body to live. One day that won't be the case. Right? We have these choreographed moves that are designed to remind us that our God, our Lord, is one. That we are in relationship with him in really powerful ways. Yeah? Yeah? The other thing that this goes up against is this idea of faking it till you make it. Right? We have this weird notion that if you give, and you give for the wrong reasons, then somehow you're not giving. That if you pray, but you somehow pray for the wrong reasons, that you're not praying. I don't know how that works. I don't know how that could actually be something that's possible. Now, I I can imagine that I don't know in my own frailty how to pray well, and I don't always get it right, and I kind of mess up. But I can imagine that taking time to pray and to reflect won't lead to something better, yeah? I can't imagine that. Uh, I may not understand completely what it means to be a generous person, but I can't imagine that trying to step into that, to step into that choreographed movement of being generous, won't somehow help me learn how to be generous, right? We have this really weird idea that if you live out a life by the kingdom's principles, that you could still somehow botch it up. 
think that might be that shame thing that's bouncing around in there, right? Um, I, I think that we can live in those kinds of ways. Um, and the last thing is that some of us, um, some of us are in different parts of our journey. Um, some of us are, we need to be reminded that, no, 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 it's okay that you're in a tough spot. Um, it's okay that things aren't going well, but you have enough to grab onto to remind yourself, yeah, yeah, you know what, I just got to get back to these choreographed movements. For others of us, we've never really experienced that kind of freedom or that kind of certainty of being loved. And so I think the last thing that I would say is that some of us just need to dance more. Um, so I want to end with a self-effacing story. When I was in college, as part of uh, a college ministry, uh, I didn't really know much about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. I just knew that it seemed like um, a story that I wanted to be a part of. And so I was a small group leader, and, and I had a group of guys... Uh, that I met with frequently, and then I had a mentor that I met with. And I remember one year, I just really struggled with, like, all the ways in which I was constantly failing. Um, and all the ways in which I, I just didn't seem to be getting it right or loving people well. Um, and I remember I had this great talk with uh, the camp, one of the campus pastors who was my mentor, and he said, you know, he said, sometimes you just got to, like, get back to practicing. And I was like... I thought that was like a heretical term. Like you couldn't say practice in the context of like gifts of the spirit. Like that's a bad thing, right? Like you can't practice. This is given upon high in stone tablets. Um, but then I, I thought about it. And I said, yeah, I don't really practice like knowing that I'm loved. And the reason I don't practice knowing that I'm loved and that I, I can help out the kingdom is because I don't actually believe that I can be loved. So how do I get back to that place? Um, and so one night, I lived in this great house with all these uh, Christian guys that were also small group leaders. Um, and one night, they were all gone for the weekend. It was just me by myself. Technically, me and a hamster named Arnold Schwarzenegger, all one word. Um, um, uh, and so me and Arnold Schwarzenegger were in my room, and... Um, I mean, he was always in there. I mean, he's a hamster. He can not go anywhere else. Um, so we're in there, and I remember I was reading the Bible, and I was reading through um, the Old Testament, and there's that verse about David was in linen, and he danced before the Lord with all his might, which I really like this image of, like, all his might, right? Like a real, he's a real popper. Is that the, so you think you can dance those guys? Um, um, uh, so he's, he's dancing with all of his might, right? And, and I, remember, I remember getting this, like, clear, oh, guys, so clear. Like, I think a fog machine started playing, like, in light, like, so clear of God just saying, now it is time to dance. <laughs> and I thought, what? I, I grew up Catholic, which I loved, but um, we don't do that. <laughs> uh, we don't just all of a sudden start dancing. Uh, and so I was like, no, no, no. I kept reading. Now was time to dance. Uh, and so I remember, I don't remember what the song was, but I remember putting on music, and I remember, oh, just footloosing it out for Jesus. <laughs> for like hours. I don't remember how long it was. I just remember the next day I woke up. Um, and I remember just going crazy. I mean crazy. At times crying. 
right, dancing until I cried. Um, part of that was I went, I danced past a mirror. Um, but, um, uh, well, no, I wasn't, I wasn't, no, it was because I felt bad that others couldn't see it. Um, uh, but I remember, like, I remember just this powerful moment, and then I remember reflecting on it with my friends and with my mentors afterwards. And what became really clear was there's literally no practical application outside of wedding receptions that that moment had, except for this one really, really important thing, is that it reminded me of when I watch my daughter and I say, Nora, do you want to dance? that the reason she dances is because she knows she's safe. And she knows that everyone's going to smile at her, and she knows that everyone's going to clap for her, and she knows that everyone's going to love on her. Right? Some of you need to go, and you need to dance, and you need to remember that you're loved, and that you matter, and that you're important. Right? These letters in the book of Revelation speak to us because they remind us that the reason we are all here is because we have been entrusted with this great commandment to love God and to love our neighbor. And the reason that we're empowered to do that is because we have the ability to dance. That when we are in the right spot with God, that we remember that you were made beautiful and wonderful No conditions on that. Let that sit for a second. What you choose to do with it, that's up to you. But there are no conditions on how much you are loved. And some of us need to take time to do that. So here's my very, 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 very practical encouragement to you this week. Some of you need to go get a radio, right, and flash dance your way to kingdom living. Okay, well, stay more dressed than that. Um, Some of you need to get back to living a life that embraces those disciplines as choreographed movements, right? Don't wait to become a generous person. Just do something with generosity. Don't wait to be the kind of people that take time to pray. Just pray, right? Start living into those freedoms, right? And then next Sunday when you see me, depending on what time the Seahawks play. Um, (laughs) Just kidding. Um, But I would like to thank them for playing Saturday uh, today. Um, And then next week when you see me, you can come up to me and tell me all the crazy things that happened during your week. And I'll tell you all the crazy things. And you can tell each other all the crazy things. But I think one of the things that's been sort of over this uh, community is that you don't have to be perfect, right? You sometimes just have to dance.